Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake-me-up-when-the-sun-sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Happy Friday and welcome to the Hash. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in crypto news. I'm Jen Sinassi. We got Zach Seward, Adam B. Levine, and David Morris on today's show. Zach, some breaking news going on with Binance right now. What do you got? Yeah, we're fired up. There's a lot to talk about today. It's going to be a good one. Uh, Let's start with Binance. The SEC chilling effect is real. We've seen the SEC ramp up enforcement actions and other actions against U.S. crypto companies and projects linked to U.S. crypto firms as the SEC tries to bring crypto within its regulatory perimeter. And Binance is responding here seemingly reasonably and saying, hey, we're cutting ties with some of our U.S. crypto involvement. This was first reported by Bloomberg, according to sources, later seemingly confirmed in a tweet by Binance CEO CZ. And it does suggest that the, uh, the things that we've been seeing recently around, again, various regulatory enforcement actions is making Binance back off from the U.S. scene and take its ball overseas as much as it possibly can. Interesting development in the wake of some pretty high profile regulatory news this week and last. Lots going on in this one. I saw Adam's hand. I'm going to toss it to him first. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is this is exactly the type of response that you would expect from large exchanges that are not domiciled in the U.S., but which have kind of these like uh, tentacular networks that reach into, you know, all kinds of different places kind of all over the world. <laughs> Great right? word, Adam. global. Thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's not at all surprising to see this. It is also a continuation of trend, which is that you're either a U.S. regulated company, which means that you deal with all of the advantages that come with it, which is access to the U.S. market and the disadvantages that come with it, which is basically requiring permission for almost everything that you do. And to the extent that you become attractive, well, there's lots and lots of ways for them to go after you. So, I mean, the U.S. determines jurisdiction as far as this stuff goes really on two factors. One is where are the customers? The other is where is the company domiciled? 
Binance doesn't have any U.S. customers. They have Binance U.S. to handle that part. So this is more about where's the company, which means, again, not a good thing if you're a U.S.-based crypto company. And we have been hearing some rumors about tokens, too, but I don't think that that actually got confirmed. So, uh, Jen, how about down to you? Yeah, I know. You said this is exactly what we would expect from a firm like Binance. I think this is exactly what the SEC expects, too. I think a lot of the recent SEC enforcement and action is expecting firms like Binance to react like this. This is what they're hoping that they're going to do. You know, I was reading the story this morning. It says that they're looking to end relationships with U.S. banks and service firms. What was interesting to me is that the story said that they're considering delisting tokens issued by U.S.-based projects. I know, Adam, you just mentioned that Circle was mentioned in the story. CZ came out on Twitter and said that that's actually not the case. I have PTSD from the last six months, so I don't know what to believe, not trying to FUD or anything. But David, as I hand it off to you, maybe you can help me think about this. What could this mean for Circle if they are delisted from Binance as a result? Right. What to believe is definitely a question to ask here, because obviously, um, you know, this it's interesting whenever you make an announcement before taking the actual action, maybe you have goals other than just saying this is what we're going to do. And in this case, you know, I'm not saying this is actually something that is reasonable to think, but Binance may be operating from some thought that they can threaten and intimidate U.S. regulators into stepping back to say, like, we aren't going to do business over here and you should somehow take that as a reason to to take a lighter touch. I don't know. Um, There is this larger narrative around the, the fact that this crackdown is going to push crypto activity out of the United States. Um, But I don't think the SEC sees that as a bad thing. So it's not like they have any real leverage here. So I I, I don't know. We'll see. I honestly, the thing to keep in mind is that even if there is continued regulatory risk, the U.S. is going to continue to be a major, even maybe dominant market for something like Binance. So as they're saying, we're going to pull out of the U.S., definitely take it with a grain of salt. There's some complexity there. Yeah, I think it's hard to look at what the regulators are doing and not come away with the idea that this is effectively a form of regulatory protectionism that is going to and is already probably having a net negative effect on people, right? You look at the large frauds that actually have occurred, they haven't succeeded in stopping any of those. You look at something like BUSD, for example, right? So Tether, of course, has long been treated as sort of like hey, it's the giant thing that we all hate and want to go away because it has all of these problems within kind of the crypto space. It needs it, but the relationship with it is really strained. Part of that is because of the US. Part of that is because it's not regulated in the US. And there's been a lot of questions about what is going on there. The recent action against uh, Paxos, though, which is the issuer of the white label token uh, BUSD, they are not just a US regulated entity, but they're actually a New York Department of Financial Services regulated entity. So it's kind of hard to find like intense regulator than that. And in practice, what's happened now or what is likely to happen is that because BUSD looks like it's going to be wound down because the regulators are unhappy with the US-based issuer, Binance, which had moved away from Tether-based dollar pairs within their very massive exchange, is probably going to go back to Tether because that's the option that they have available to them. So again, like on the one side, here's intentions. On the other side, here's reality in terms of what's actually happening. The reality is, is that the regulators seem like they are going to be pushing back the world's largest exchange off of a U.S.-based stablecoin and onto one that we know that there have been lots of sketchy issues with and lots of concerns around for a very long time. So, you know, I I don't think this is unintentional. I think it's unfortunate. (laughs) Zach, what do you think? 
Yeah, the tether angle is a funny twist. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to read between the lines of the SEC action against Paxos and say, hey, we don't like your involvement with Binance. Notably, the other stablecoins that Paxos issues are not involved in this complaint at all. USDP, formerly Paxos Standard, similar dynamics, similar Mm. function, probably does exactly the same thing in terms of redemptions and whatnot that BUSD does. That's off the table. This is strictly about BUSD. And the implication is pretty clear. And CZ heard it loud and clear. He said, okay, if they're going to chip away at, again, the tentacles that reach into the U.S. and make our lives miserable, fine, we're not going to deal with it anymore. And I don't think it's much of a threat. I think it's actually a concession to U.S. regulators that said, okay, you know, I tip my cap to you, sirs. You won this round. We'll see what happens next. Again, I think David's point about, you know, announcing it before you do it is very salient. So we'll see what happens there. But in terms of them being able to exert some leverage by saying, you know, we're not going to be exposing ourselves to even U.S. crypto firms, not to mention U.S. crypto investors, that seems like quite the win for Gary Gensler's approach on this one. Mm -hmm. Interesting to see for sure. All right, let's change gears, go to another SEC story. This one is amazing. I'm going to kick it to David for this. Yeah, if you're a demon like me, it's Christmas. So this is really, really staggering. We've obviously been paying a lot of attention to uh, Terra USD and Do Kwon, and we did some of the early reporting that, frankly, I believe triggered the rush to the exits as people realized just how bad the situation was. We now have charges from the SEC, and what's really notable about this is often when charges come down from the SEC or other regulators, they pretty much are just a laundry list of things we already know. These charging documents include huge new drops of information. And I'll just mention two right up front. One is that we have confirmation that in May of 2021, that is a year before the actual unwind and collapse, there was a smaller loss of the peg and that was actively bailed out by a third party. And so that basically the implication is that every time somebody like Do Kwon after that said Terra USD is stable, that was a fraudulent claim because they knew that they had to be bailed out prior to that. The second big revelation that I, I want to mention up front is that the SEC claims that Do Kwon and or his allies have access to a huge stash of Bitcoin that was funneled out of various entities and that they have cashed out as much as $100 million worth of it um, via a Swiss bank. And so that is stuff that we, people have been trying to trace, haven't been able to nail it down. Now we have very clear claims from the US SEC of those two particular things. So it makes it much more clear that Terra USD was an overt fraud almost from the very beginning. Zach, I saw you throw up a hand. As alleged by the SEC, it was a lie the whole time. The original use case that drove Terra into prominence, Chai, the usage of Chai, a payments platform in Korea that seemed to indicate that they were seeing major traction relating to the Terra blockchain relied on fabricated numbers by Doquan and by Terraform Labs. So that, to me, is like sort of the initial, like the, the original sin that launched into sort of the crypto awareness. Oh, here's an interesting payments thing that's happening in Korea. Oh, wow. Actually, it turns out that the whole Genesis story of this potentially interesting thing was concocted. So that, to me, is like very striking. I mean, David, you're right to mention the Swiss bank thing. That's a very big allegation. $100 million since June 2022. A month after mm-hmm. it hit the fan, Quan and his, and his friends seemingly cashed out $100 million. And I think the SEC goes to great lengths in the complaint itself to point out the regular average investors who lost big time. Talking about $20,000 sum for a, for, a, for a son's college education, gone. We're talking about $400,000 
you know, from someone in Kansas who took out loans, gone, contrasted very prominently in this filing document with the $100 million that's been cashed out through a Swiss bank linked to mm-hmm. allegedly a cold wallet administered by Quan and his associates. So personally, I just want to go back and correct my own record. I think I've been on this show and said, hey, Tara worked until it didn't. No, Tara never worked, as alleged in these documents. Tara was always founded on fabrications. And this is a pretty damning indictment of Juan's involvement in this thing from the get-go, even before May 2022, Mm -hmm. when it first emerged into sort of the bigger consciousness. So anyway, I would like to correct the record and say, no, it didn't work until it didn't. It seemingly never really worked properly ever. I'll toss it back to you. Good on you. And we'll, we'll open the discussion, but I do want to point out one more piece of Coindesk reporting that was just published a couple of minutes ago, which is that there is an unnamed third party in these documents. And Coindesk reporter Sam Kessler and Tracy Wang have been able to contact their sources. And we appear to have confirmed that that unnamed third party was Jump Crypto, which means that this is one of the backers of the system in the first place. They participated in this bailout which you know, may implicate them in fraud charges themselves to the extent that they profited from the benefits of that appearance of stability generated by the May 21 bailout. And a spokesperson for Jump had no comment when we reached out to them to seek their, their side of the story. So they're not denying that at this point. Zach? All right, I got out my little righteous indignation. I do want to zoom out a little bit and say that this is also pretty damning for the crypto sector as a whole. If you look at this complaint alleging that investing in stable coins, which you know, don't have sort of an expectation of return, but investing in stable coins itself uh, puts investors in a common enterprise, right? Which is another prong of sort of securities definitions that US regulators use. So this is pretty broad in its reach relating to both stable coins, but also how most crypto businesses go about getting the word out about what they're doing and how they're doing it. So if you read the complaint itself, I think there is reason to be concerned for um, firms that are operating in the US or firms that are operating overseas with US personnel, because some of this stuff is pretty standard practice uh, in terms of, hey, we're, 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 uh, we're putting out our development updates. We're putting out um, you know new and exciting announcements that in the eyes of the SEC in this instance is seen as promoting. And in this case is seen as, um, you know, bolstering their case against some of these claims that may not ultimately be true. I want to let Adam in, but I want to make one clarifying comment there, Zach. We need to dig deeper. But my impression from reading the documents is not that the stable coin itself was considered a common enterprise. They leaned really heavily on Anchor, which for those who remember, was where you could deposit the stable coin and get these outsized 20% yields. So it's a little... We may need to dig further, but my impression was not necessarily they were targeting all stable coins are common enterprises, but that they were offering outsized returns using this specific stable coin. And so it's kind of the entire system. But Adam, you wanted to get in, go for it. I mean, I think that if we're looking at this in the totality of everything that's been alleged here, what we find is that this, irrespective of what it was called or represented, does appear to be a fraud from the beginning. And that then puts a different light on a lot of reporting uh, you know, that was done over the course of the last couple of years. David, I remember a story that you wrote last year talking about the anchor system you know, and also talking about the Luna Guard, right? which was this big sort of nonprofit fund that was supposed to take some of the profit that was coming from elsewhere in you know, the system and then use that to buy lots of Bitcoin to defend the peg should the peg ever break. And what you were talking about earlier is that part of the money, part of that $100 million that's been alleged to have been taken out came from the, the Luna Foundation Guard. So Yeah, it turns out you, LFG stands for let's friggin' go to Serbia. 
Well, I mean, if you, if you, uh, you know, if you look at that, if you just take those two pieces of information, then what you find is that here's a fund of money that is intended explicitly to prevent the, the collapse of the system that was not used to prevent the collapse of the system and was instead transferred to a personal wallet. Uh, you know, or transferred to a wallet mm-hmm. where it was not used for that purpose. So we thought uh, at the time that Terra collapsed, that they had just burned through yeah. all of that money that was there. Well, they but burned in fact, through a it lot like, of it, but not all of it. Well, not all of it, clearly. If the, there's the still total kind of raise, they had like three billion. So yeah. the hundred million that's left over is out of three billion, but still, exactly, they got away with a lot. It's of pocket it. change, except it's not pocket change. It's still a hundred million dollars, right. right? So. I don't know. There's a bunch of other elements of this story, but, but uh, let's go to Jen. I want to get you in here before we end. Yeah, I'll be super quick. I think this just like reiterates that we need to take a really hard look at this industry. I think back to the interviews that Doquan did after this thing exploded. And I remember it was so SBF-esque. I remember him saying, you know, we couldn't have known this. I'm so sorry. We, we really cared about retail investors. This is not where we wanted it to go. He didn't mention that he had previously failed on a project just like this under a pseudonymous name that was never revealed. And so to hear this is just Mm -hmm. really upsetting that we've propped these people up. And the SEC, I think, did a really good job at doing their homework and and, you know, looking into all of these things, we haven't, I haven't seen the SEC do research like this before and publish it and us have these big revelations. And I just think that it is a little bit of a wake up call for the industry. And I don't know, I think we like what's going to happen to jump crypto. I, I look at them, you know, through a different lens now. I don't know, Zach, I saw your hand go up. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I, I, the media angle, right? Like when someone is out here peddling mistruths, I wonder how much there is to be done and how maybe antagonistic crypto media should be going forward. Going to be interesting to watch. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain and Web3 startups, teams and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. Welcome back to The Hash. Next, let's turn our attention to Ethereum, where as developers gear up for the number two blockchain's next major upgrade, thoughts are turning to its potential impact on the token's price. In the fall of last year, many will remember, there was quite a lot of attention paid to the protocol's last major upgrade, which was known as the merge, where the Ethereum blockchain successfully moved to a new consensus mechanism. Even though that transition went well, about as well as it could with no major hiccups, the upgrade actually did little for traders and the price trended lower over the rest of the year. But this time might be different, at least according to some analysts. That's because there are more than 10 million Ether tokens currently locked up in the blockchain's proof-of-work system. And if things go to plan, their owners could take custody of them back. David, what do you think? Yeah, is that number correct? 10 million? I, that's uh, less than more I than 10 million, guessed, 17 but... million, something like that. It's a okay. lot. So I guess I would say there are two dynamics here. Obviously, when you get a big unlock like this, you maybe you're going to have people looking for liquidity, so you could have some sales, you could have some downward pressure. However, on the other hand, I think we are in a sort of incipient uh, bullish phase right now because we have had so much of this, you know, Doquan, Luna crap cleared out. Um, there, there is a sense that we have bottomed. And so you might also see some people hanging on despite this unlock, looking for further upward moves in the sort of medium term. Short term, we might get a, a little bit of a, a drop, I think. Zach, what do you think? I think the having is priced in. I think the unlock is priced in. 
I don't know if this mm. is going to see a ton of price activity happen. Hey, I mean, like, no, people are probably going to stick to their ETH, right? These people are yeah. crazy about this ETH stuff, man. <laughs> Ethereum seems to be doing pretty well for itself, uh, both as a smart contract platform and Ether as the asset itself. You know, it hasn't reclaimed the glorious highs of its bull run peak, but holding steady. And yeah, I think the incipient bull market vibe out there certainly has a lot to do with, you know, potentially the reading of tea leaves when it comes to the macroeconomic picture as well. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, is the unlock priced in? I'll toss that back to you, Adam. What do you think? I mean, I think just talking about the incipient bull market narrative, I'm really curious to see if that one winds up playing out. I think that there are a lot of like, certainly the Federal Reserve, macro monetary policy, et cetera, like they don't want that to happen. But there is that interesting dynamic, which is that because the U.S. is currently in like in an extraordinary measures period of the debt ceiling, right, where the Treasury effectively can't borrow any more money directly. So instead, what they're doing is they're spending down the cash that they have. That actually is a net stimulative impact. And it's something that's expected to last probably until the end of the spring. So that's something that just got started uh, like last month. And it has a significant chance of actually counteracting what the Fed has been doing in terms of trying to tighten monetary policy levers. So I appreciate that that suddenly got super wonk. I don't have to talk about this, but I do think that there is an interesting argument for a technical bull market just because of what's going on at Treasury right now. Any further thoughts on that, David? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I, I, Treasury is definitely fighting against every bull market everywhere and seeming to not have much success on, on any front. Um, but of course, we have the inverse, right, where as they fail, the likelihood of further extreme action becomes more likely. Therefore, good news is bad news, et cetera. It's all complicated. And um, ultimately, we are paid to talk about this stuff, not necessarily to know the future. So <laughs> we're just doing our best. Um, I believe our last story, we're going to go to Jen to talk Web3. You don't know the future, David? Come on. <laughs> I mean, no is a strong term. Let's put it that way. All right. Let's talk about some NFTs. Let's lighten the mood a little bit. So Sony Network Communications, a division of the Sony Group, is launching a Web3 incubation program for projects that focus on NFT utility and DAOs. The program is going to be organized by Startail Labs and will challenge entrants to explore how blockchain technology can solve various problems in their industry. The parent company of Startail Labs, Astar Network, uh, recently ran a similar program at Toyota, looking at how Toyota can implement DAOs within their business model for better decision-making. David, I'm going to toss this one off to you. DAOs for better decision-making in hierarchical businesses that have been around for decades sounds crazy to me. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of this? Well, I, I would say first that like Toyota in particular is pretty well known for experimenting with structures. So this is not entirely out of step for them. I'm not as familiar with Sony's managerial approaches. Um, the other thing I would say right off the bat is I, I was not familiar with a star network. And uh, I did just a tiny bit of poking. They seem to be based in Japan, which makes sense given these two partnerships with Toyota and Sony. The other thing that's notable about them is they are a polygon side chain uh, in terms of their structure. So that's interesting because for those who, I mean, there's some complexities, but polygon is debatably an offshoot of Ethereum. So we're now looking at an offshoot of an offshoot dealing with these big corporations. So I think it speaks to sort of the amount of traction that still exists out there for this kind of project. I, I don't know if Zach or Adam was first, but uh, Zach, go for it. Just going to fact check you. I think you, I think you meant Polkadot there. Um, but Polkadot, sorry. That yeah, is, thank you. Yeah. They do share a co-founder, Gav Wood, Ethereum co-founder, who later went on to launch Polkadot. So I think Astar has like its own parachain 
which in, you know, in polka dot parlance is sort of the layer one where polka dot is sort of the layer zero. So there's sort of the added complexity with how polka dot works. I'm going to wait. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reserve judgment on this one. I want to see what emerges from this one. I would much rather see this story after that cohort is graduated to see what kind of use cases we're ultimately talking about and whether or not some of these top tier partners actually deliver value. You know, I think in the history of crypto, we've seen a lot of announcements like this don't ever seem to materialize that much. So for me, I'm waiting to the, the real story here is not the launch, but is the completion. And we'll see what happens with that. But congrats on Astar for bagging a big brand. Last thoughts to you, Adam. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be quick. So yeah, I think that this is something that you would expect to see from a company like Sony. Again, there are lots of problems that tokens and NFTs can legitimately solve for a big publisher like that, that still uses traditional distribution networks. Again, like there's an enormous use case to be had around NFTs just for the ownership of games, right? If you didn't have to go through storefronts like Steam, if you didn't have to go through storefronts like Epic or whatever, but game, games were just universally owned based on having a token. So you can, like, that's one of like 50 different problems that this stuff really can solve. So there is a real reason for it. On the other side of things, you know, like you've got companies like this who basically this is their whole business model. They say, hey, we can help you innovate and find ways to do this. That's a continuation of trend that we see here. Again, it's another step on the long road to boring. And I think that we're moving along at a nice clip. So, but I think that we can, uh, Jen, you got any thoughts on this one? Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to bring up the road to boring. I was going to say, this is, you know, Web 2.5. We've seen this kind of in the financial aspect of the industry. And now we're seeing it with NFTs and DAOs. And I think it will be interesting and quite boring if we can see this technology kind of infiltrate the traditional businesses that they've been trying to disrupt. But off to you, Zach, to wrap us up for the weekend. Let's do it. I'll wrap. Developer report by Electric Capital did suggest that there are some devs in Polkadot land. So let's hope they find some funding and build some (laughs) cool things. All right. That's it for the show. Thanks for bearing with us. I'm Zach. That's Jen. We got Adam. We got David. We're The Hash. We're on TV. We're also on the Podcast Network. Check us out. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.